0: The Olivet Discourse we got through, and the Olivet Discourse is, is probably one of the hardest passages in all the New Testament for interpreters to, to, to lay out. Um, that's what's so misleading about popular prophecy experts is they treat the Olivet Discourse as if it's simple and easy to decode, and any honest, reputable scholar will tell you no, it's not. The Olivet Discourse, there's, there's multiple layers going on there. And so interpreters have struggled with it for centuries and centuries. So it is, but more than anything last week, I wanted to stress is reading the apocalyptic words of Jesus, reading him as a prophet speaking in a prophetic apocalyptic manner, and then reading the history of the event that he was first asked about when he started the whole speech, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, Which I gave you the excerpts from Josephus to compare it. When you read them side by side, you see that if Jesus is, if you allow for hyperbole and prophetic exaggeration, which the prophets did all the time, then he's very much 90 percent, if not completely, describing the fall of Jerusalem Uh, more than anything else. He's not addressing primarily the end of the world. The end of the age is the end of the uh, mess. the Jewish sacrificial temple age, the end of the Mosaic Covenant and that did come to an end in 70 AD. Uh, People can try all they want uh, to build a new temple in the future in Israel and there's people around the world trying to do it, praying to do it and for followers of Jesus there's absolutely zero merit in rebuilding a temple. There's no reason to even look to any future temple uh, the only reason people can give is the ezekiel prophecy which we looked at a few weeks ago which in ezekiel was a vision of the end the new creation so if anything if there will be a new temple god's going to build it and it'll be after he sets everything right um, but the question that the new testament puts it on is Jesus' body is the temple and now his worldwide corporate body is the temple every reference every description of the temple in the new testament after, or, or, or other than the gospel passages where it's literally talking about the Jerusalem temple, everything in the New Testament, whenever temples mentioned, especially in Paul's letters, it's always referring to the believers. You yourselves are the temple of God. Um, Peter talks about we're living stones being built together on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, any any future temple to look for is is one of of God building His kingdom through his people not with bricks and stones. The John passages the main thing to emphasize is in John 5 and 6 that resurrection the hope that Jesus preached was always resurrection of the body that the Messiah would come and would like he would do what was promised in Daniel 12 which is raise the dead. Um, Ultimately at the end resurrection body is the goal not dying and going to heaven forever or going to hell forever, but rather being raised up bodily and being judged in the body um, was, was the hope of Jewish eschatology and it's what Jesus taught as well. He also taught in John 8 very clearly, very clearly, that and, and you can go back and read this whole exchange with, with the Jewish um, opponents of his, that it does not matter what your ethnicity is. If you do not believe in the Son, then you do not believe in the seed of Abraham, and you are not part of God's covenant people. Uh, Jesus flat out says it, and he says it so severely that they accuse him of having a demon in John 8. And he says, they say, you know, we've got Abraham as our father. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. So, any view of the end times that puts any type of salvation or covenant a, a relationship outside of Jesus or apart from Jesus is one that's diametrically opposed to the gospel. Jesus Himself, you, you know, some people are what they call red-letter Christians. They don't believe it unless it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Well, one, that's a silly position because His followers wrote down everything He said, so everything's coming through their minds. But, even if that is the case, fine. Here's red-letter Jesus talk in John 8. He is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. He's everything Abraham looked to and rejoiced. That phrase when God, uh, Abraham believed in God and God credited it to him as righteousness, the the saving faith of Abraham was faith in God's promise of a seed, of of a deliverer, of a Messiah. Abraham didn't know any of the details, didn't know how it would work out, but he knew God would keep His promise. Jesus comes along He says, hey, I'm the promise. Abram was believing in me, even though he didn't know my name, he probably didn't have a vision of me or anything. His faith was in God's promise, and and I'm the fulfillment of it. So the children of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, are those who are in covenant with God through God's Messiah. When Jesus came on the scene, he was was the uh, polarizer among his people. And he separated, and we saw the parables last week, I'll separate good fish, bad fish, sheep and goats, wheat and weeds. Jesus separated. He came in his message when he was preaching. He said, I don't think I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword because on my account, you know, father will rise against son and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, et cetera, et cetera. He quoted from Micah 7 talking about when God visits his people, even family alliances will be challenged if, if they come in the way of obedience to God. So Jesus basically said, put all of your eggs in my basket if you're part of Israel, because if you are truly Israel, you will remain in me. You will believe me. If you if you don't believe me, then you are rejecting the one who sent me, he says in John's Gospel. So if you go through that and read it, there's no room for any idea that, that there's a plan B or, or another track of getting to God just because somebody is ethnically Jewish. And that's a, a folk theology that's come into the church mainly because of Post-Holocaust guilt and the fact that the church has really done terrible, terrible things to the Jewish people—we can't let g- valuable and needed repentance get in the way of what Jesus and His apostles taught. So you can be, you can, you can be loving, and you can be, um, you can, you can exhibit wonderful Christ-like relationship with your friends who are Jewish, or your or your family members who are Jewish, or. But what you can't do is say, because of how much I love you and how good we get along and how, how awful I feel for the history of your people, all of those are valid, you can't say, because of that, I'm going to set aside the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that he was your Messiah. That's the ultimate disservice. That's the ultimate act of anti-Semitism, if you wanted to put it that way. That, um, and, and it's not a popular notion but it's a biblical notion and it's it's a hard one but you can't especially john's gospel you can't read and come away with anything but that Uh, if you can't email me and i'd love to hear how so those are the references john 15 you know the vine and the branches the true vine the vine was israel in the old testament israel was god's vine so jesus now saying i am the vine again that thing jesus is the new israel it's not about the church and israel like dispensationalists or replacement theology, both claim. It's about Jesus and the promise of Abraham and him being the fulfillment. I would say the true Israel is Jesus himself and anyone who is in him. Like I, I would put the identity not on his followers, but on him as the true vine. And insofar as people abide in him, then they're abiding in the true vine. People assume, especially in popular media television, radio, and, and evangelism, they just assume that the way they use the word Israel is the same way the Bible uses the word Israel and is the same way that the newspapers today use the word Israel. But that word, even in the Bible, it says not all Israel is Israel. And that's one of the huge implications of Jesus' talk with the Pharisees and those who rejected Him in John chapter 8, is they're saying, hey, 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 hey we're children of Abraham. And He says, no, you're rejecting me. children of the devil. (laughs) Not popular, not a popular message. Now that's been used to justify all kinds of horrors against the Jews and calling them Satan's children, all this stuff that's not what Jesus meant at all. What he meant is if you are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit, seeing God of Israel in your presence and rejecting Him, then you're doing exactly what Satan wants to happen, which is people rejecting the truth of God and turning to a lie. Even in the Old Testament you see a distinction of God's Israel versus earthly ethnic Israel. So the idea that any end times view that says, you know, that puts a priority on a nation because they have the name Israel is one that has a hard time squaring with the Bible, regardless of how many proof texts are are put forward. Because in context, what we're going to see is the Bible teaches something very different. Look, just really quick, we'll, we'll look at one section from Acts. Everybody in here, almost every, I'm sure, at least knows the main point of Acts 2, what happened at Acts 2, which is Pentecost. Because this gets missed by a lot of people, even people that have studied the Bible for a long time. Does anybody know what Pentecost was supposed to celebrate? It was Passover. And 50 days after Passover, Pentecost, 50 days after, Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Pentecost was when all of the Jews throughout the world who could get there would come to Jerusalem and would celebrate the giving of the law. Exodus 19 when God came down and gave the law, made the covenant with Israel. Pentecost was the celebration of the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. Yeah, and so Jews from all over came to Pentecost to celebrate because that was Jewish Fourth of July, basically. I mean that was when Israel became went from being a group of slaves who were freed from a country to being the nation, the covenant nation of Israel. So Pentecost celebrated that. So it's it's there's no it, it, it it's not at all surprising that that would be when the Holy Spirit would choose to descend and to 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 indwell the people because remember what did Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 promise? What event did they look forward to and promise? Does anybody remember? Pouring out of
1: the spirit.
0: Yes, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 were pointed forward to the new covenant. And the new covenant would be when God put his spirit inside his people. It would specifically not be like the old covenant. He says it flat out in those passages. So, At Pentecost, when Israel, the nation, was celebrating the Old Covenant, the Passover Lamb, Jesus, had already died and inaugurated the New Covenant, and now the proclamation of that New Covenant was given at Pentecost. No more suitable a time for God to say through mighty acts, I am creating my people fresh, new. I'm creating the new Israel, the new covenant Israel that that the prophets all looked forward to. I'm creating that. The idea in in dispensationalist circles that the prophets did not foresee the church uh, runs up against the wall of the New Testament and and crumbles against Acts chapter 2 because look what Peter says. Acts 2 verse 14. Um, Peter stood up with the eleven meaning the followers of Jesus, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And these are the crowd that have heard all of these people who are filled with the Spirit speaking in tongues. All of these languages, people are hearing the gospel preached in their own native language. So Jews from Persia are hearing it in Persian dialects. Jews from Alexandria are hearing it in Greek or Egyptian dialects. Jews from everywhere are hearing it in their native languages, this proclamation of the gospel. And some are just saying, well, these guys are just crazy, they're drunk, whatever. So Peter says... Verse 14, raise his voice, address the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants. Both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on to say, hey, this is happening. This is happening. God raised Jesus from the dead, verse 32 God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Alright, so you can't say it any clearer. Peter is telling everyone what the prophets saw has begun to happen. We've moved from the former days to the latter days the last days the end times the eschaton however you want to call it that's peter at pentecost this 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 shows as crystal clear that peter a jew of jews spoke to fellow jews on the jewish day celebrating the formation of judaism the religion of the national identity of israel that jesus is the messiah and has now poured out his holy spirit and this is in fulfillment of all that the prophets were looking forward to. It's now begun. So, when we read Joel then, we don't see that Joel was looking at these peaks of prophecy and the church was in a valley and he didn't see the church. Nonsense. Joel saw God fulfilling his kingdom promises. And what we see in the New Testament is that happens through Jesus. So any visions of the prophets of Israel for the future now through Jesus include all who are part of Israel through faith. So again, it's not like God said, Israel, you rejected Jesus. Most of you did. I'm done with you. That's not true. It's it's not like he said, I'm going to put my dealings with you on hold. I'm going to create this new thing called the church for a couple of thousand years. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to rapture him away. And then I'm going to get back to business with you because that's what the prophets saw. That's not true either. The prophets saw the fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant, and those promises all came to a head in the ministry, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. So that's what it means when you hear theologians, New Testament theologians say, Jesus is the culmination of all of the Old Testament promises. The sacrificial system pointed to him. The law pointed to him. The history of Israel itself pointed to him. The prophets all looked towards him and saw it. This is why we can say that the Old Testament is Christocentric. Jesus focused. Even if it's not explicit in the Old Testament, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus and his followers claimed, I am making it happen. And now it's begun, this new era. And so we've moved from the era of the covenant with Moses. On Pentecost, that covenant finished, and the new covenant began. And, and, and you don't, There's one covenant, not two, uh, the Mosaic covenant, and that would give way and eventually give birth to, which it did through Jesus, the new covenant. And so that's what we see in, in the New Testament as well. Uh, read through sometime. read through Acts or, or, or the, uh, I mean, just as you're reading the New Testament, keep this paradigm in mind and see if it doesn't make sense of a whole lot more than other ways that you may have heard or may have grown up with or, or that you may hear. See if this doesn't make a whole lot more sense. When Jesus' ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit, the prophecies in the Old Testament began to start happening. And it's a, it's a false, it's a false um, dilemma to say, well, Jesus isn't the Messiah because all the stuff didn't happen at once. Or, well, Jesus didn't fulfill the Old Testament prophets. We're still looking forward to that in the future because all the things didn't happen at once. The Old Testament doesn't give a chronology for these events. What Jesus said is, the Kingdom of Heaven is like a little bit of yeast that was put into a big lump of dough and it works its way through. It permeates. Or it's like a mustard seed. It starts out very small, but gradually it grows and becomes the biggest bush in the garden. The kingdom of God is advancing, and it has been advancing for 2,000 years. And that's where we find ourselves, in these last days where Jesus' kingdom is advancing. So when people say, do you think these are the end times? Sure. But Peter lived in the end times. You know? The end times began with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit according to the Old Testament prophets. That w- remember, as we, that's why we took so much time to look through the Old Testament prophets a few weeks ago. Whenever they talked about the end, the goal, what God was planning on doing, it always involved this giving of His Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit, this drawing all nations to Himself from Israel. Well, Jesus puts that all upon Himself, and that's what's been happening for 2,000 years. Is People, Gentiles all over the world, have been coming to faith in the God of Israel through Israel's Messiah. Uh, It just didn't happen with him sitting on a literal throne. It's happened him sitting in the heavenly throne. And the debate among Christians is, will he come back for a thousand years of sitting on a literal throne to finish up some stuff that the Old Testament seems to point to? Or will all of that happen when he comes back and ushers in the new creation completely? And that's a valid question. That's a a good question to wrestle with when it comes to eschatology. But the other stuff, if if you you start getting too far away from that, then you get into all kinds of uh, unbiblical notions. We'll look at Paul's letters. The big passage that everybody in time stuff points to, especially when you point out the Olivet Discourse and how you want to be left behind, what about the rapture? So let's start there, since that's the number 1 example there as you've heard from here from me from Talbot from if you've read Ben Witherington and T Wright any credible new testament shouldn't say cre- well yeah I will say any credible new testament scholar that's writing biblical scholarship will, will always say there's no passage in scripture that talks about a pre tribulation rapture I think even John Wolverd has admitted that and says it's an implicit doctrine rather than an explicit doctrine. Uh, I, I think either him or Ryrie, somebody, one of the dispensationalists has even admitted that. So the, the place where everybody turns to is the verse where the term rapture gets its name from. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians, beginning in verse 13, and it actually goes through 5.11. Um, I want to spare my voice, so somebody read this out for us. Read uh, 13 through the end of the chapter, and then somebody else will pick it up. Tyler, we do
1: not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus dies and rose again, and so we believe that God will breathe with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we, So we will be with the Lord forever.
0: We pray, we'll uh, just finish verse eighteen.
1: <clears throat> Therefore, encourage each other with these words.
0: All right, we can pause right there. What is the need or the uh, what is Paul addressing? What's the question that's prompting this discussion?
1: What's going to happen to those who have already died?
0: Yeah. Paul, you know, we've come to faith in you. We believe in you, but now some of our people have died, and and they were expecting the Lord to return for them, to return for everyone, for the kingdom. You know, Jesus said He'll be back. So people are dying. What's going on? And what Paul is letting them know is, relax, relax. Jesus beat death. Death's not going to prevent anybody from being with Him. Anybody who dies in Christ will not miss His coming. They will not miss it. And so he talks about that when Jesus comes, uh, he'll bring with Jesus, but we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him or in him. Then 15, according to the Lord's own word. This means according to Jesus' own word. um, And and this is possibly something that uh, oral tradition that was passed down that Paul is passing on. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, what's going to happen when Jesus comes down from heaven? Now this is, this is explicitly talking about Jesus coming down from heaven. This is different than the Son of Man coming on the cloud passages, which we're talking about Jesus ascending to heaven on the clouds and, and approaching the Ancient of Days like Daniel 7. This is now talking about his what we call the second coming. So this is a second coming passage. What is going to happen? What's going to accompany this second coming? It's not going to be quiet. What are going to, what, how do we know that? Yeah, verse 16, a loud command or a loud shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Right. And that's one of the the confusing things about modern rapture theology is it's always something secret, something that happens, poof, people are gone. There's no trumpet, there's no loud voice, there's no archangel's command, but if you read the origins that that we looked at in the first couple weeks, if you look back into like Edward Irving and Margaret MacDonald and her vision and then John Darby and Schofield who popularized it, the way that that's gotten around in this is they say, well, this stuff will happen, but it'll only be those who have spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear that will know it's happening. Now, now, r- whatever you want to say about that, you have to say that's not in this text. You do not get that from this passage at all. So you would have to look elsewhere to find that. And you would look and look and look, and you won't find it. Because at, at the second coming, it's not going to be something that people don't notice. And Jesus, Jesus... His followers, everyone, was clear about that. In other words, you're not going to miss it. Relax. You haven't missed it. <laughs> then, here's, here's the key, though. Verse 17. After that, meaning after his return, we who are still alive and are left... Very interesting.
2: Left.
0: That's, that's, you want to be, again, you want to be left. You want to be left. We, those who are left will be caught up together with them, meaning those who have died in the faith, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word, if you want to circle it, caught up, that word in Latin is rapturo. And that's where the word rapture comes from, rapturo. That's the Latin version of this, which was originally in Greek, but when they translate it into Latin, Rapturo, that's where the doctrine of the rapture comes, or the name of the doctrine of the rapture comes from, will be caught up to meet them in the clouds. To be, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This again seems to imply that when Jesus comes back, those who are with him that he comes back for will be with him forever, rather than in heaven while he's doing something for a thousand years. And then they, ret- so this, this, this is something that if, if you're a historic premillennial or any of the other dispensational positions, you have to take that into account. But verse 18 is the key. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other. We look forward to this, but not as a being raptured out of the world so it can perish, but rather as a return of the king, to borrow the title of the famous book. The return of the king is what this passage is about. This is something that people who teach the rapture from this passage—I've never once heard—address this. The words for going out, for for being uh, going out to meet a king at his arrival—it's not something that Paul just made up. This is actually something that we read, again, in Josephus, who is writing about the time of the Ori Church, around the time of the Ori Church, he talks about what should happen when a king comes to visit. And the, the meeting of a king, or a ruler, or whoever is coming, the word there, and I've given it the Greek word in parentheses throughout it, but it's that word, hupantesen, hupantesen. Well, when Paul writes about meeting the Lord in the air, he uses the same word with a different prefix, but it's the same root word, apantesen, because it's not a going out into the countryside to meet a returning king. It's meeting the king of the universe on his return to the earth. So, Paul's message about going, on to meet, going with them on the clouds to meet the Lord in the air is a is a first century word image word picture that the readers would have been familiar with. the The meeting of a king is something that happened. A, a, an apantesis a hupantesis. He's not. He's Paul's not just talking about a. We're going to just fly up into the air and meet him just because that's where. It, Paul's, that that may be the case, but Paul's not primarily concerned with Jesus's astrophysical descent into the atmosphere as he is with communicating to the Thessalonians, your king will return and we will all go meet him. And since he's not returning from a land on the earth, he's returning from heaven where he sits and reigns, then if we're going to go meet him, just like you would go meet a coming dignitary out in the fields and escort him back to his city where he would rule, Jesus is coming back from heaven, so we'll meet him there. Now, whether Paul's, you know, again, how literal to press this language, take it or leave it, 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 it doesn't really make a big difference because the overall point is not that he's taking people out of the world and putting them somewhere, but rather his followers, Jesus' followers, are going to meet their king as he returns. And then if this is an apantes, and if this is a meeting, they're not going to go somewhere else. They're going to turn and follow him back to where he reigns, where he rules, where his throne is—it's going to meet, to greet, to welcome, not getting beamed out of here before the stuff gets really bad. It's—it's it's a welcoming party. The—it's even the, the word parousia, you know, the coming of the Lord. That's the word. Verse in Josephus, the bottom of the first paragraph is—that's the term used for the coming of a king. You go do a, you know, apontes and a hupontes, and you that is what you do or what, what the reaction is when there is the parousia of a king. There's an article by N.T. Wright called Farewell to the Rapture and he, he makes this point. He kind of walks through what Paul was talking about. Paul was using an image. He was, he was not... There's, there's no way to get... one, there's no way to get any kind of secret rapture in this passage, but two, the whole idea of the rapture, in other words, to, to go somewhere to wait for 1,007 years or a thousand and three and a half years, depending on if you're mid-trib, th- there's nothing in this passage that teaches that. What this passage teaches is Paul using a stock image that his hearers in Thessalonica would have known, which is about the parousia of a king, and he's talking about the parousia of the king when he returns, and he brings with him all who have died, all who have fallen asleep with him. Uh, that's, that's the image he's giving. So then he says in verse five, or chapter 5, now, because the question will arise, well, you know, when's this going to happen? Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we don't need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So again, this, this coming, this thief in the night is, is seen as judgment. When, when Jesus returns, just like he talked about in the days of Noah, the thing that came so quickly and, and, and took people away wasn't any kind of secret rapture. It was the floodwaters of judgment came quickly, and they took people away while they were just living life as normal. So Jesus' return will be a return to judge. There will be judgment when he returns. That's why the warning, to be on lookout. Not for, for, for signs we can decode and figure out the timing, but be on the watch means if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, be living like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, so that when the king returns, you won't be living like a citizen of the kingdom of the earth. And, um, and, and the, so it's a warning not to look and try to find out the times. Paul says, I don't need to write to you about the times, because he said it's going to be unknown. Paul's very clear here. He says, "Live ready every day." Verse 10, he finishes, "He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, that means whether we're living or we're dead, we may live together with him. Therefore encourage one another. Build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing." So 1 Thessalonians 4:13, the ra- and this, excuse me, is there's two passages that people point to when they try to talk about the rapture. First Thessalonians 4:13, Matthew 24. Some point to a passage in Revelation, we'll look at that hopefully in a minute, but, but the big two we see don't teach anything of the sort, of, of the rapture that you see in Left Behind or, or that you hear about on TV. 1 Corinthians 15 50. These two passages frequently get interpreted together with Matthew 24. Alright, so one, one will be taken, one will be left, will be caught up in the air to meet him, these are the rapture passages, and then this one Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And Paul goes on to quote uh, an Old Testament passage as a taunt about death. Now, this passage, you'll hear it. Twinkling of an eye, that's getting caught up in the rapture. That's, if, you're, if you listen and you read what people write or you, you go to uh, radio or TV preachers and listen, all the time people quote this with the First Thessalonians passage. But what both of those passages are about are the resurrection of the dead and the new create the raising up to new life, the, in, the perishable putting on imperishable, our decaying bodies being being done away with so that our resurrection bodies are what we live in. It's all about all of these passages that talk about Jesus' return, Put it in the same context, sometimes in the very same breath, with final judgment and new resurrection bodies, the, the, the new creation. That's there's there's nothing, regardless of whether there's a thousand-year period of historical premillennial, you know, what they would argue for, regardless, there's nothing like a rapture in any of these passages. These are passages about the resurrection. And that's where when you read Tim LaHaye and others, they say, well, certain passages are about the rapture, and I gave you the list a couple of weeks weeks into the class, and certain other passages are about the resurrection, meaning everyone, the resurrection of the dead. No. The passages that are about, quote, the rapture are passages that are about the resurrection if you just read them in context. Um. So... I don't want to beat that horse to death, but it's a very popular horse, so it needs to be smacked around every now and then. <laughs> any any questions on that? Flip real quick to Titus chapter 211. I just want to point this one out. One of the things that you see is people talk about the resurrection again, this rapture versus resurrection. People say, well, the rapture is the blessed hope and it's the glorious appearing that's the resurrection. If you read the left behind novels those are the names or yeah, those are the names of one of the novels at least is the glorious appearing. The glorious appearing is the resurrection of our bodies. The rapture is the blessed hope because in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So far, so good. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some translations will say blessed hope and the glorious appearing. And in the Greek, there is the word chi, which is the word and. But that is what's called epizegetical, which means that it's not two separate things. He's not saying the blessed hope, event one, and the glorious appearing event two it's the blessed hope that is the glorious appearing it's 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 perfectly in line with biblical parallelism where the the second term qualifies or elaborates or defines the first term the blessed hope is the glorious appearing they're not two separate events just because there's an and between them and the niv got it right on this they say the blessed hope dash the glorious appearing and most modern Bibles as well will get that. So, those are, those are the big rapture passages. I mean, that's it. Like, you can't... That's it. There are other passages about the rapture in the Bible. Go back and look through the list I gave you that from charting the end times and read those passages in context and you'll see there's no... I mean, you are pulling at straws to try to find something about a rapture in there. There's one verse in the Bible... That could possibly be seen to teach a rapture. It's in Revelation, and you'd have to not interpret it literally, which is breaking the rule of dispensationalism, in order for it to pre- teach a rapture. But I'll hold that one off. i got to leave a teaser for getting there. Uh, real quick, the, the mystery, you know, the, this phrase over and over again. Some people say, well, the, the, what's this mystery that Paul's writing about? What's this mystery? Turn to Ephesians. Paul uses the word mystery a lot. And some people have said, well, the mystery is, the, it's something that's not revealed, and Paul says it wasn't revealed in prior ages, and only in the latter days has this mystery become known with the teachings of Edward Irving or John Nelson Darby, with visions like Margaret McDonald's and others, with the rise of, of, of dispensationalism, this mystery is now revealed. That mystery is... The distinction between Israel and the church and the rapture of the saints and all this stuff, that a lot of times gets tacked on or or mixed into this discussion. But the mystery is nothing of the sort. Look what he says, Ephesians chapter 3. start chapter 3, verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration, and that word is the dispensation if you've got an old school Bible, of God's grace that was given to me. For you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. That is as anti-dispensational as you can get. The mystery is what what the prophets didn't see in the Old Testament wasn't the creation of what we call the church. They saw that. They, they They wouldn't have called it the church probably, but they saw New Covenant believers coming to worship God. What they didn't see, what was a mystery to them, is how all of these Gentiles would come to have knowledge of God and be included in the family of God. They didn't see that. Paul reveals how it would happen. It would happen through Jesus Christ taking on Israel in himself and all who are, look at the phrases, in him. The mystery, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So, can Gentile believers claim the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Covenant? Absolutely, if they are part of the body of Christ. This, that's, not, that's not replacement theology, that's good theology. That the promises, all of the blessings promised to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. So anything that we non-Jewish believers in Jesus receive, we receive as co-heirs or fellow Israelites. Although, as Paul talks about Romans, we're wild branches grafted in, but we're still grafted in. It's still one tree, one plant. There's not two peoples. There's, there's not two peoples of God. That is a modern-day Error in teaching Um, Jews Gentiles together one body that's the mystery that Paul reveals at least here in Ephesians that has massive massive implications for how you understand the role of Israel today the country versus the church as the new Israel Uh, what we're looking forward to should we be paying attention to events in the Middle East or should we be paying attention to events within the church that's a very valid question Uh, If the mystery is that we are part of Israel, then that gives Christians the right to have the Old Testament as our Bible, which has been the case since the very beginning. So, again, it's something that doesn't often get mentioned. I've never heard a sermon preached on this, but it's one of the most profound truths in the New Testament, and it's one of the few times that Paul says, hey, let me just flat out tell you what this mystery is. In other words, it's no longer a mystery it's it's a cleared up mystery. Uh, I've given you these passages so that you can go back and study them in depth and have the references and see if, if any of this holds up because again don't, don't take my word for it. Be convinced in yourself. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, to keep on this theme, one of the non-essentials, or one of the, one of the essentials, one of the non-negotiables of what it means to, to have a dispensational view is you see Israel and the church as two separate peoples of God. More than raptures, more than antichrists, more than anything like that. That is the assumption that you have to buy to go into this whole view of end times. Well, that falls against the rock of Scripture. We just saw it in Ephesians. We'll see it right here in Galatians chapter 3.26. Paul writing to the predominantly Gentile believers in Galatia. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female you are all one in Christ Jesus if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise I'll read that again for clarity if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed. So when people are saying, well, the land of Israel was given to Abraham's offspring forever. If you are part of Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. That has to play into any discussion about Middle East and and who owns the land and and all of this. You've got to filter it through Scripture before you start coming up with, especially foreign policy, if you're in the realm of politics. Uh, and that's something that's been sorely lacking, but it's just it's it's crystal clear in the New Testament. In the passages that we're reading, you don't have to import anything. You don't have to reinterpret anything. It's I mean, it is you, you talk about upholding the literal meaning of the passage. you don't get more literal than this. So it's something that like I don't know why it hasn't caught on more with with people who are so fervently studying in times. Because a number of people, especially Dispensationalists, are very passionate. But the passion is guided by a prior commitment to some assumptions that are not biblical at their core. Um, one being the separation of Christians and Jews as two separate peoples of God. Second Thessalonians 2, 1-12 through 12 talks about this figure who has to arise before Christ can return. And something, that ha- something that's restraining him being taken away first very cryptic passage. It is, it is the, it's not one of the most confusing passages in Paul. It is the most confusing passage. It's the passage in all of Paul's writings that Pauline scholars have to say, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have enough information to pinpoint exactly who or what he's talking about. But his first readers did. And they would have got it. But the, the, the point that Paul is making is there has to be a revealing of this and he uses the phrase, man of lawlessness. And he's, he's got to come on the scene before the final return of Christ. And, and in doing that, there's a, talking about the one or the thing who is restraining him will be taken away or moved aside, or if your rapture proponent, will be caught up. In other words, people who hold to the rapture say that the thing that's being taken away is the Holy Spirit because all the believers raptured up. The Holy Spirit's no longer on the earth. don't know where that comes from, but therefore the man of lawlessness can come on the scene. He's probably some slick Catholic European guy. Um, I think his name's Nikolai in the Left Behind books or something. He can come on the scene, he can do his thing, and then Jesus can return, Armageddon and all that stuff. Well, that's a whole lot of stuff to read into one passage in Paul where Paul doesn't give uh, almost hardly any detail. So you have the passage. Go to the commentaries for that. Uh, be careful what you read online. I mean, search online if you want, but just be careful because w- the one thing you'll notice when you do research and biblical studies online is people can post anything online. That's, that's a beauty. It's, all, it's a double-edged sword. It's also a curse. Uh, you don't have to have anything looked at by people with knowledge of things like the language of Greek. Or New Testament theology, or Hebrew, or you can just kind of put your own thing. And there's a lot of stuff people have put up on end times views, especially. The last one that I'll mention is turn to Romans chapter 9. Paul, after he spends the first eight chapters talking about what Jesus has done, and it, and it culminates, Romans crescendos at, at chapter 8. Then the next section, is he has to explain okay if Jesus is the savior of all people if he is the new Israel of God or the true Israel of God and the holy spirit's been poured out everywhere then paul what about all of your fellow Jews who don't believe in Jesus instead of the ones who are here in our churches in Rome who do believe in Jesus what doesn't doesn't that mean if the if the majority of Jews have rejected Jesus as messiah doesn't that mean that God's promises are Invalidated Doesn't that mean that God's word hasn't been kept? And so the argument in Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's discussion of how God sovereignly chooses to raise up nations and use them in certain ways to bring about unanticipated results. And he talks in there about the, 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 the use of, of unexpected means, and he quotes Jacob and Esau, for instance, and says, you know, God's plan, if you look at it, this isn't the first time God has turned things upside down. Um, Esau was supposed to be the guy who the covenant would go through because he was the firstborn. But God, in his sovereignty, said, I'm choosing Jacob to be the covenant bearer over Esau. And that's what the passage that Paul quotes that says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, that's what that passage from Hosea Believe it's Hosea. That's what the passage means. Doesn't have anything to do with individual predestination or hell or heaven or any of that stuff. It's in context talking about the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. And one is representative of Jacob, one is represented by Esau. And God's saying, on my list of priority, what I've the way I'm doing my thing, I've chosen Jacob, not Esau. That's where the passage. And and, and go to um, I can send more on that if you want to follow up an email. Two names that have written, I'll just give you, I don't think I have this in your suggested reading, although I might have, but if I don't, write it down. For for this section of Romans, the t- I, for my money, the two best things in print that are readable by anybody in this class is, number one, Ben Witherington's commentary on the book of Romans. All you have to write down is, B. Witherington in Google, and you'll find it. Tom Wright, who is the same author as N.T. Wright, but when he's writing as Tom, it's for a lay audience. When he's writing N.T., it's for a more theological audience. But as Tom Wright, he wrote Paul for Everyone. And that's a series of commentaries on all of Paul's letters, Paul for Everyone, and the volume that to look at is Romans and it's volume 2, I believe. I think volume 1 is Romans 1 through 8. Volume 2 is Romans 9 through 16. But this is paperback. It's like you can, 10 bucks on Amazon and you can get this. At a popular level, this, I think, is one of the best treatments of this entire passage because he brings out that the point that Paul is making in Romans 11. Let me read this. The, 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 the person who Paul... Having a rhetorical debate with is part of Romans is how he writes. Ben Witherington talks a lot about that. He says the question they ask, I ask then, did God reject His people? In other words, since the Jews didn't, in mass, come to Jesus, did God reject His people? Because Paul said all along, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the way. If you're on Jesus, you're not. You're you're broken off branch. By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. What's Paul's? Who does he offer as his answer to this question? Who does Paul offer as proof that God has not rejected His people? Himself. He, Paul says, no, God hasn't rejected His people because one of His people is writing this letter to you. And so when people ask, well, you know, did God reject the Jewish people? No, because the New Testament writers who were all Jewish men, except for maybe Luke, they're who we get the Christian faith from. I mean, that, that is, it's the continuation of the promises of Israel. So God hasn't rejected His people, but that doesn't mean, Paul doesn't say, no, God hasn't rejected His people. They still have their own way to God. Absolutely not. Paul is adamant that no, that's not there's, there is no plan B. It's Jesus is the Messiah. What Paul does hope for in verse 25, um, sorry, verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they meaning non-believing Jews are enemies on your account because they were the ones who were throwing Christian Jews out of the synagogues and therefore opening them up to Roman persecution. But as far as election is concerned, meaning God's purpose in using someone. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. Remember, all the promises God made to Israel were because of how much he loved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says it over and over. They're loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. In other words, God he's not saying, I'm going to now use something other than the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel. He hasn't revoked that. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so now, too, they have become disobedient in order that they, too, may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. In other words, what Paul is arguing here, and and there's so much more to this section that we can't even touch on tonight, but... What he's, not, what he's arguing for here is that God has dealt with the world in such a magnificently unpredictable way that the very instrument that he chose to use to reach the world, when that instrument rejected him or seemed to reject him, he had all along a remnant at work that was going to then take that message to the Gentiles. And that would fulfill the promises that the prophets looked forward to. And Paul's hope was that in the end, as that people of God expanded, then the original broken-off branches would see that and would return, would look on the one whom they had pierced, would, would finally acknowledge Jesus as the Lord, and would come to faith in Him as a people, as a group. What Paul's not talking about in Romans 9-11 through is individual salvation or individual's damnation. He's not talking about individuals' callings. or and there's, there's nothing in the language of Romans 9-11 through 11 that's individually focused. It's all focused on how God uses peoples to accomplish His will. And for more on that, defense of that, and, and the, the strongest case that you can find, um, check out Ben Witherington. You can even Google search online. I think some of his stuff on this is, is up. The point that First Peter makes, and he makes it throughout the whole book of First Peter, from the first verse where he refers to all of God's people as the elect, that has nothing to do with Calvinism or Arminianism. That has to do with Israel. In the Bible, Israel is God's elect in the Old Testament. That's just standard language for it for Israel, God's elect, God's chosen. So he addresses believers as Israel. Just like we saw, that's the mystery that's revealed as Gentile believers can now be seen as Israel along with Jewish believers. But in chapter 2, he emphasizes that, that all believers are now given the promises that were originally given to Israel. The promises of being a, chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house and that's tabernacle language, to be a holy priesthood. That was the promise originally, as we saw in the covenant, when it was made with Israel at Mount Sinai. God said, I will make you a kingdom of priests. You will be a royal priesthood. That's promised to Israel. Peter is saying, you who come to Jesus are now part of the fulfillment of that promise. He's the living stone. The promise of the temple is going to happen but it's going to be beyond anything we can imagine. It'll be a temple made up of all believers everywhere. When you get the Revelation, at the end of it, when it's describing the New Jerusalem, it describes it as one whole gigantic temple. There's not a temple in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is the temple because it's where God dwells. And that's always the focus of the temple in the Bible, was the place where God physically encounters His people. And what you see in the end of Revelation and what's hinted at here in 1 Peter is that the temple is not a what, it's a who. It's all who are in Christ Jesus, all who are united together. Living stones, not dead stones, or I mean, not not literal stones. So, that's the goal. Well, 2 Peter then, 2 Peter now is about the day of the Lord. Another phrase that we saw a few weeks ago that the Old Testament prophets equated with the, the, the final everything, what, what we're looking forward to, the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord. Peter's now writing about it. Go ahead.
2: I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior to your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? Um, He, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot the long ago by God's word in heaven's existed, And the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world world of that time was deluged and destroyed. But everyone to come to repentance. but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will, will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the God of the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness.
0: All right. This is where a number of people have have built their eschatology and their view that the day of the Lord will be one of, you know, it's where, um, what's his name, who I mentioned a couple of weeks ago said, uh, talking about environmentalists. He's like, oh you think pollution's bad now? Wait till you see what Jesus does. This is the passage that's being referred to. The entire image that Peter's using here is the image of refinement. When you have something, you know, a lump of, of precious metal mixed with non-precious elements, you, you put that into the fire. You refine that. You, you burn away all that's impure And then what remains, all the dross, what remains is the pure. That's what. Think about the image that he's comparing it to. He's using an opposite image of the flood. He started out talking about the the creation in Genesis and the flood, all these events in Genesis 1 through 12, 1 through 11. He's saying, or if you think about the logic, what did the flood do? Did the flood destroy the world? No, the flood purged the world, it destroyed the wicked at least of the people who were in Galilee, that's what was destroyed, that's what was taken, that's what was was purged from the earth. It was a washing of the earth. Well, in the same way, God promised he's not going to ever do that again with water in Noah's day. It's going to be even more intensified. It's going the, the final day of the Lord, which that judgment just barely hinted at, is going to be a, a, a purging of evil from the universe, not just from the face of the earth, but but from, from the universe, the elements themselves will be burned, as he says, or melted. In other words, it's, he's treating all of creation as this mixture of, of fine metal, precious metal, and garbage. And what we look forward to not, is not this heavens and earth that we're in now that's fallen, that's decayed, that's corrupted, but rather God burning away all of the impurity, all of the dross, all of the non-precious, and then what remains, what we, what we inherit, is the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we look forward to, where it'll be, as he says, a home of righteousness. And Revelation chapters 21 and 22 give a glimpse of that in apocalyptic format. So, so the, the point of 2 Peter is not that God's going to destroy the world so that He can then take us up into heaven and we exist without bodies forever and ever. And it's not, he's going to destroy the world in, in every way possible. And In other words, he's not going to undo creation. He created it to be good. He's going to redo. He's going to refine. He's going to restore. And the image that Peter uses here is the image of a fire burning away and purifying. And, and getting rid of all of the, everything you don't want to be there. That's what's taken away. And what's left again, is the pure, the holy, the righteous, the, the dwelling of God and His people, the new heavens and new earth. So, is it, that, that's what Peter... This is as this is, is close to... If you want to read an Old Testament precedent for this, read the Old Testament prophetic, prophetic passages that talk about the day of the Lord being a day of fire. Read Malachi. Malachi talks about the day of the Lord being a day of judgment, a day of fire. Read in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians early chapters where Paul talks about some people build with stone, some people build with straw or precious stuff, some people build with un- useless materials. And Paul talks about in the end, all it will be laid bare and what remains will be what isn't burned up, and, and including preachers and teachers. He's talking about ministry, that on the day of the Lord, even the ministries that we do will be judged, will be put through the fire. And if we've built on the solid foundation of precious stones, and you know he's using the metaphor, if, we've, if we're standing on Jesus, then that will remain. Anything that we've built that's not built on the foundation of Christ will be burned away. Um, so I would say in tongue-in-cheek, but in good-natured manner, all of these eschatological systems that people have invented over the years will be burned away. Uh, just because somebody preaches... Rapture theology doesn't mean they're not a Christian. It just means that that'll be burned away. This is coming from somebody who's openly not rapture theology proponent. But regardless, anything that I've taught that's false will be burned away. Uh, And and so that's the image that that we have is at the end, everything will be put right. Everything will be restored. And it won't be just restored back to what it was in Eden. It'll be something completely new and, and, and better than it ever was. And some use it as a fervor. They speed up because they think He's going to come any moment. And that's the, the one good contribution that, that pop eschatology has made, is that for some people it's motivated them to get out there and tell people about Jesus. And that's something that you know, we can praise God for. Uh, but some people, again, like the Thessalonians that Paul wrote to, were using His imminent return or their belief in His imminent return as a time to withdraw, pull away from the world, quit their jobs, stop worrying about stuff, don't pay anybody back that you owe money to because it won't matter. And you do hear accounts of that in the modern times. People, you know, before 1988, people maxed out their credit cards. And, you know, you, you can, uh, N.T. Wright gives in the book, I think he gives examples of that where people actually did act incredibly irresponsibly as a result. And I don't mean that all people that believe that act that way, but. Um, John's letters, without turning there, I've just given you the three posts that people talk a lot about end times and the Antichrist. You hear a lot about the Antichrist. Read 2 Thessalonians because that's the biggest description of an end times Antichrist figure. However, that person is never called the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. The word Antichrist only appears in the entire Bible three times and it only appears in two of John's letters. 1 John, 2 John. And it never is describing one final big bad guy. It's describing false teachers in the here and now who've already gone out into the world inside the churches. The Antichrist has already been revealed, John says. Many Antichrists are among us. And this is how you know who's an Antichrist, anybody that denies Jesus has come in the flesh. In other words, what The only writer in the Bible that uses the word antichrist goes out of his way to say that it's not just a one-size-fits-all category. Rather, it's descriptive of anyone who denies the essential key component of the Christian faith, which is that Jesus was God incarnate in the flesh as a man died for our sins, all of that stuff. So it's very interesting. So, Where's
1: the third place?
0: There's, uh, the first place is First John chapter 2. The second place is 1 John chapter 4, and the third place is 2 John verse 7. Those are, those are the only three, only times that it's, the word Antichrist is used. So that should give people pause before immediately looking to Revelation and Daniel and all these places for descriptions of the Antichrist. Uh, You've got to import those, even in Thessalonians, which is the best you know, that's one that I'm even comfortable saying. That's probably describing what we would think of as the Antichrist. You still have to import that name into that passage. So, again, it, it's, it's a system. It's, you're piecing it together and, and with, with views of the end times, with any systematic theology. And that's what we're doing, by the way, in this whole course. What you've been doing is systematic theology. We just haven't called it that. But what systematic theology is, is taking an aspect of the faith, in this case eschatology, and seeing what the Bible says about it, and then pulling it all together and coming out with something workable and something systematic. So it's a fancy word that gets thrown around a lot. You've been doing systematic theology for nine weeks. So you're all theologians. You've uh, just been being covert about it. Revelation, I'll end with this, and this is why I'm not to uh, I'm 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 not well there's a couple things. I don't I'm not disappointed if we don't get to go through Revelation for a few reasons. One, because Revelation like Daniel depends on your belief or your view of the Bible and, and inspiration and end times views and Israel of God and all the all the things that we've been discussing in the foundation passages like the passages about covenant and the prophet's visions and the, the apocalyptic works in the Old Testament, all of that then gives you a proper basis to go through now for yourselves and read Revelation. You have all of the tools needed to formulate what you think Revelation is saying. You have the main views of Christian end times, how Christians think it plays out, pre-mill, ah post preterist. You've got those. If you don't remember them or you didn't write great notes, you've got them free online if you want to go and listen, because we've been putting the things online. So as you read Revelation, you can ask yourself, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, after the seven letters, when John says, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and I heard a voice that says, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. You can read that, and you can say, is this describing the rapture, or is this a revelation given to a prophet? an apocalyptic manner because a lot of people will say, yeah, the rapture is even in Revelation chapter 4. John sees a door open in heaven, says, come up here. Well, if that's the case, then Paul got raptured because he had visions like that where he was transported into the heavens in a vision. So no, Revelation 4 isn't teaching what most people consider the rapture. That's reading it into that passage. And and you being able to read and, and make sense of this on your own could see that. The thing about knowing Daniel chapter 7 that we spent time looking at, now when you read about the throne and the Lamb approaching the throne of God, you now say, huh, I remember somebody approaching the throne of God and being given all power and all glory and all honor and all worship. It was the Son of Man in Daniel 7. So now when you read Revelation chapter 5 and you see the Lamb approaching the throne and being given all power, all wisdom, all worship, being given the scroll of God, God's royal decree, God's very authority being given to the Lamb, you can draw the. You can say, well, oh, I'm reading an, an, another apocalyptic description of the same thing Daniel 7 was talking about. And there's numerous. There's over 15 parallels between Revelation 5 and Daniel 7 that you can see if you read those two. When you read Revelation 7 about uh, the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, now you know, huh? okay, Israel doesn't always mean ethnic Israel. So rather than saying these are going to be 144,000 believers who are Jewish, who who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation after the church has been raptured in Revelation 4, you can read it and say, okay, wait a minute. The church wasn't necessarily raptured in Revelation 4. John just receives a vision. And the people who he sees in Revelation 7, the 144,000 who are sealed by a mark on their foreheads, that's, when he, when he hear, that's what he hears when he turns and looks. He sees a vast multitude from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation that can't be counted. That's what he, so so you, can, you can pick up in Revelation that the 144,000 are this innumerable multitude. And, and the image of 144,000 comes from the Old Testament image of Israel's army. In the Old Testament, whenever tribes were listed in order, by starting with Judah and given such-and-such such thousand from the tribe of so-and-so, such-and-such such thousand from... That was always an, uh, an Israel military census, a Hebrew military census. And it's at least four times in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, two times, the book of Samuel, and the book of Chronicles. So, using any good study Bible that, that will point you back to those, you can say, Oh, he is seeing in Revelation an Israeli or a Hebrew military census. He's seeing an army, and when he turns and looks, it's not an army from Israel. It's from everywhere. It's all those who've been redeemed. So the other reason that I'm comfortable leaving Revelation off and not discussing it in depth, other than you being able to read it now fresh on your own and, and pull in all of what we've talked about over the last eight weeks, is because we did a sermon series here called Numbers and talked about things in Revelation. So you can you can go back and listen to that online on the church website or, or just ask Shirley for a copy and she'll give you the set of all the messages but we talk about everything 666, 144,000, we talk about the thousand years in it all of that stuff has been covered and the third reason why I'm okay leaving us without having gone through Revelation together is because I'm about to release a DVD set on it and you can buy that and go through it and <laughs> <laughs> which I'll have a preview at least of the case next week so you can see um, Let's support we're, him. We're, yeah, we're, we're we're out of time right now. Next week, though, we, we've we've like I said, you've been doing systematic theology. We have walked through the biblical passages, and we haven't walked through all of them. We haven't covered every eschatological passage. There's more in there, but we've covered the big ones, the main ones. You have the views that Christians have had throughout the years. You have the texts that Christians have looked at those views in light of now before you. So you are equipped to form your own eschatological position, or at least your own beginning conclusions. You, you may not know, well, am I an amillennial or am I a historic premillennial? You may be persuaded on either side. Well, hey, you're, you're in, I would say, good company, because I haven't made up my mind either on those two. I think that there's good things about historic premillennial, but I think there's good about amillennial in, in passages. In other words, passages have to be regularly read, studied in their context, And at the end of the day, it's not as important that we have our eschatological ducks lined up. What's important is that we we have a general understanding of where everything's headed and that we're able to read Scripture and always go to Scripture and say, what is this passage saying in its context? And only after that do you say, how do I then fit that with other passages? Rather than having a cross-referencing system that you read everything through. Um, so, that's not the goal of the course. If you want that, get the old Schofield Chain Reference Bible and go through and get the correspondence course that he did. And, I mean, that's out there, but that's not what we're doing. Next week, what we'll end with is the questions of personal eschatology. You know, okay, what happens when I die in the meantime? You know, what happens to me? Heaven, hell, all that stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that. I'll give you the passages, I'll give you a sheet that's got more notes on it like we had today. And then you'll be equipped to any questions that we don't get to, you'll be able to follow up on your own and find out. So And that's the goal of this is equipping, rather than just disseminating specific teachings, um, is equipping you to interact with different things that you read and see and hear.